<coughs> Today is the 20th of February uh, 2018 and uh, for the talk this evening uh, we're going to continue the, uh, the series we've been doing for a while intermittently on um, uh, women masters uh, who we have incorporated in our new chant, the Pool of Radiance. And tonight we're going to um, look at the life or the incidents we know of the life of Satsujo. And we'll start off with um, a story called Satsujo. Satsujo sits on the Lotus Sutra. And this, will, this is from The Hidden Lamp. Um, and we'll just um, go right in and, and uh, read this story first and then we'll, we'll go, from, go from here. Satsujo sits on the Lotus Sutra. A devout layman took his young daughter Satsujo with him whenever he went and visited Master Hakuin. Though only a child, Satsujo was a devoted practitioner of the Dharma. When she was 16, her parents were concerned that she would not find a husband and asked her to pray to Kanon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. She did this day and night during all of her activities. Before long, she experienced an awakening. One day, her father peeked into her room and saw her sitting on a copy of the Lotus Sutra. What are you doing sitting on this precious scripture? He shouted. How is this wonderful sutra different from my ass? She replied. <laughs> okay, so that's, our, that's the story we're going to start with. Before we have a look at it, just a little bit of background information on Sachijo and on a little bit on Hakuin. So um, we just we, to start with Hakuin, we just recited his chant and praise of Zazen. Um, Master Hakuin was is probably well is one of the most influential, if not the most in influential figure in Japanese Zen. Um, he, his dates are 1685 to 768 and just to give a little bit of uh, connection to Western things, um, 1685 um, is also the same birthday, both birthday year as uh, Johann, Johann Sebastian Bach. Besides being uh, renowned as a, as a Zen teacher and a reformer of, of Rinzai, uh, sect, he was also renowned Hakuin for his calligraphy and painting. And he was also well known uh, for not turning away women who wanted to practice Zen, and this was pretty rare um, at that time. And it is said that he had scores of women students, uh, some of them coming from the brothels of Hara, the small town that he lived in all his life and some people may remember if, um, a while back maybe a year or two ago we looked at the story of Ohashi who was who, who came to an awakening during a thunderstorm and she had um, gone into prostitution in order to support her family um, in, in the stories around, around Master Hakuin, this village of Hara is almost one of the characters 
It was a, um, a small place, but it was on the great road that linked Tokyo and Kyoto, the Tokaido. And, and it was one of the places where travelers stopped. So a, a large number of people passed through it, staying at the inns there. And the, these people, the people ranged for, for all kinds of people, all levels of society and um, all kinds of occupations and, and um, so forth. So the, this was um, a part of the flavor of Hakuin's teaching and he got lots of the inspiration for his painting from uh, the many people who passed through this, this um, post station on the Tokaido Road. So Satsujo was, as we, as we um, heard in this story, a student uh, uh, of Master Hakuin from a very young age. Uh, from from childhood, um, her dates are roughly seventeen fourteen to seventeen eighty nine. Her father was um, uh, an influ influential citizen of Hara, um, and actually a cousin of Hakuin. Um, his name was Shoji Rokube and he died in 1750. And, and he was also a boy, boyhood playmate of Hakuin. So they were, had known each other, they knew each other for many years and were quite close. Um, he was um, a, a patron actually of a Nichiren temple. This is the Japanese sect that, that um, worship the Lotus Sutra, which appears in our story. And it seems that Hakuin's family, quite a lot of them were um, uh, Nichiren supporters. There's a famous story of Hakuin uh, going along to a very fire and brimstone uh, talk uh, with his mother as a, as a, as a child um, to a, a Nichiren temple and then being taken by his mother for a, a bath afterwards and um, being totally freaked out by the heat that he experienced in the bath because of having heard this um, talk about the, the fires of hell and this was one of the things that was to, was to kind of motivate his his own spiritual search. So anyway his cousin was a patron of, of the local Nichiren temple but he and um, another cousin of Hakuin's cousins, his brother, studied quite extensively with Hakuin. So his daughter used to go along with him, and so she was exposed to the Dharma at a very early age. Um, and obviously it wasn't just an, um, that she was exposed, but that she also that she, there was a lot of receptivity there. Um, and the story, the story here goes that, that um, her parents were concerned that she might not get a husband, find a husband. And some sources uh, read into this that perhaps she was very plain. Um, and of course, at that time, looks were very important in terms of who you ended up marrying and could affect your well-being, your material well-being at least. Or we might um, guess, when you, we read some of the other stories about her, 
that perhaps her parents were concerned about how feisty she was <laughs> and, and didn't think that that would be very attractive to pr prospective husbands. But anyway, they give her this instruction to chant. And what she was, she was told to chant to, Kanz to Kanon. And um, in, in one of the sources it's mentioned that the chant she did was our um, ten verse Kanon Sutra, so the one that we chant regularly. Um, and, and we're told that she used to go in secret to um, a temple in the nearby town of Yanagizawa um, where there was a special figure, a uh, Kanon figure of, uh, with 11 faces and uh, I looked it up and it still exists um, and as the, uh, the temple grounds are still there and there are two huge trees um, growing around this temple which are considered to be sort of um, natural monuments of the, of the city of Yanagizawa. So she took up this chant and gave it um, all she got and became, got to the point where she was constantly reciting it. Whatever she was doing, whether she was sewing or washing or cleaning or sweeping or cooking. And, and this is one of the first points we can take from this koan, from this story, is that um, we're not the, the normal activities of our daily lives uh, don't have to get in the way of practice. Uh, we can we can apply ourselves, um, use our minds in a meditative way through all these activities. It's said that um, after a few days of getting to this place of constant recitation, unbroken recitation of this, um, the Ten Verse Kanon Sutra, she experienced an awakening. And then at a certain point her father peeked into the ro her room where she was and perhaps he'd noticed that she'd been behaving a little bit oddly, perhaps not coming to meals or, or just um, secreting herself away in her bedroom. So anyway, he, he, he sneaks a peek, wondering what's going on and horror of horrors he finds out that his daughter has been sitting on a copy of the Lotus Sutra. Now remember he's a follower of the, of the Nichiren sect, um, a serious follower who supports the local temple. And the teaching of the Lotus Sutra is, um, it, it's sort of got its own message about itself built into the, into the Sutra. And it teaches that it is the supreme sutra, the king of the sutras. It's said that if you if you even pray, you can pray to this sutra, and uh, or even just to one of its characters, and each character is said to contain all the teachings of all the sutras of all the Buddhas. So to to sit on a sutra, this that that is is held up to be revered. Are deeply revered was um, a kind of sacrilege um, in in 
in Asian culture and in Zen culture too, we, we emulate this ourselves. Um, if you revere something, you, you place it on a high shelf. You might, uh, if you, uh, in the mornings when we put our raksu on our head, that's sort of the opposite of sitting on it, it's putting it above ourselves, not putting it underneath us. And then, and then we recite the verse of the raksu. We, we um, tell people to put their sutra books on the mat rather than on the floor because that's a way of showing the, the sutra respect. We, we do this ourselves. Um, so the father's reaction was not, was not an unusual one. And um, so he, he, reacts, he reacts strongly, shouts at her, and then she comes back with this wonderful question, how is this wonderful sutra different from my ass? <laughs> Other versions have my, um, my derriere, but I think it was probably a bit stronger than that. And so with this question, she just throws out ideas about profane and sacred. And she's also um, affirming something that is, for us in the West, we have to learn again and again and again. And that is um, to this notion that we have of, um, that comes to us from the, the Judeo-Christian tradition of the impurity of the body and especially the female body and especially the nether regions of the female body. There are still places within the Buddhist world where um, women are not allowed to enter into the, the, um, the shrine uh, precincts, pre uh, precincts because you know, whether a Buddha figure is because they may uh, have their period and be um, introducing something impure into this pure uh, area. You know, people who've, who've seen this and um, seen, seen the signs saying keep out if you're female and, and wondered at the fact that, that dogs and cats are allowed to wander in, in the uh, temple grounds but not women. But um, another factor in here, and the, the richness of the story, is that um, one of the things the Lotus Sutra is known for is its teaching on, the, on women being able to come to enlightenment in a woman's body, not having to... Some, in some places the teaching is that, um, some of the sutras, that you have to be reborn as a man to um, attain Buddhahood. Because of, because of a woman's body being impure. But the Lotus Sutra, it teaches that women can awaken in their present form. We could think um, here too of, um, of Master, Master Huckham's own words that we just chanted a few minutes ago. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. This body, not some other body that we have to get from somewhere. And not a male body or a female body, but just this body, whatever body we have. And in a, and in a real sense, 
um, in the Lotus Sutra is also an emphasis on essentially there's just one body, the body of Buddha, uh, which we are all a part, or an aspect. Um, this story about the Lotus Sutra um, is related to a similar story um, told um, in the biography of Hakuan, again about Satsuyo. Again, again um, mentions her going going as a child to um, Hakuan's temple. And this time her father sees her do doing Zazen on top of a bamboo chest and he scolds her. What are you doing? Don't you know there's an image of the Buddha in that chest? And Satsu's reply um, is, then please allow me to sit where there's no Buddha. And please allow me to sit where there's no Buddha. So it really... Um, just a slightly different emphasis. One, one, um, one is a little more, more um, the first one emphasizes the sacredness of everything, including all of our body. And then the second one, she's affirming the presence of Buddha everywhere, that there's nowhere that isn't Buddha. It's a reminder to us that um, um, how we see our circumstances, how we see um, the world around us is uh, completely changes the way uh, we experience things. So to see Buddhas everywhere, to see um, to experience our own body as a source of wisdom and a, and a vehicle for compassionate action. And this is how our koan works on us, is to, to apply our question, whether we're working on mu or what is this, um, if we, we're applying our question at every moment to whatever we're doing, then that is um, bringing into awareness a Buddha nature at every moment. Or if we're working on the breath, then that is keeping us with what is in this moment. allowing us to drop our abstractions and and be present. Anyhow, after after this um, uh, exchange with um, Satsujo, whether whether it's over the Lotus Sutra or perhaps um, the Buddha in this chest, he 
he's a little kind of, you say, um, dismayed at his, his daughter's response. And so he, he tells Master Hakun about it. And Master Hakuin reassures um, Satyajo's father and says, um, take her this poem and see, see how she responds. And he wrote out a, a waka. If you can hear the voice of a crow that doesn't caw in the darkness of the light, you'll welcome the father before you were born. And so the father takes this calligraphy home and, and puts it on his wall. And Satsujo sees it and says, hmm, priest Hakuin's handwriting. I'd expect something a bit better from him. And when the father goes back and reports this um, to Hakuin, Hakuin is, uh, wants her to see her. And so she... she he, she's brought before him and he asks her various questions and she's able to respond to them very easily with no hesitation and then she, she, she's not interested in any anymore and um, he strikes her with his shipe, his bamboo rod and then we're told that over the next six months they, they engage um, in dialogue. Master Hakuin um, assign her various questions and her um, working on them and passing all the additional um, koan barriers that he, he gives her. Some other little anecdotes which um, give us a sense of her, her character. One day a person named Rimpen, which means completely encompassed, came for an interview with the master, in other words with Hakuin. After he expressed uh, the understanding he had achieved, the master tested him. Have you completely encompassed the great void? Rimpen then described a circle in the air with his finger. That's only about half, said the master. Satsu was sitting off to the side. She said only a moment ago it was completely encompassed. And the master nodded in agreement. So she's, preco she's precocious, and this first experience she had, um, again the estimates differ depending on what source you read, but she's somewhere between 13 and 16 when she had her awakening experience reciting the Kanon Sutra. That got to the point where um, monks would try to, to challenge her and test her, and one monk asked her, what is me the meaning of the words 
breaking up white rock inside a poppy seed. And um, this, this expression was one that, that Hakuan used for calligraphy, and it was in full, breaking up white rock inside a poppy seed, culling frost on the ocean floor. So they appear to be impossible things. And, but Satsu, on, on hearing this you know, question, immediately threw her teacup on the floor, smashing it. And another time, um, Hakuan gave her um, a particular koan and then asked for her to give her understanding. He said, what is your understanding of this? And Satsujo said, excuse me, master, could you go over that once more? And some of you may relate to this when the koans are particularly long. You might be asking to hear it again. So um, Hakuan began to repeat the koan and before he had finished, she suddenly placed her hands before her on the floor in a deep bow and said, thank you for your trouble, and left the room. And uh, we're told that Master Hakuan said, hmm, I'll have to watch myself. I've been caught short by a snot-nosed little girl. <laughs> At a certain point, um, Her parents decided that, that she really needed to get married. And she didn't particularly want to. Uh, perhaps she wanted to stay and, and um, practice our Zen full time in Hakuan's temple. But uh, her father came along and begged Hakuan to talk to her. And this is what he said. You comprehend Zen well, but you need to put it into practice. It is best for you to marry, acting in accordance with the natural pairing of male and female. Spirit and form, enlightenment and actualization must be harmonized with the realities of everyday life. In other words, um, getting married. Uh, having sex, bearing children, raising children, all of these uh, can be seen as uh, powerful forms of meditation, moving meditation. Master Hakuin said um, that meditation in, uh, in movement was, he said, like a hundred thousand times better than meditation in stillness. The reason, reason why we start with stillness is because it's easier to gather the mind in stillness. But it would be pointless to, to do that if it wasn't something we could translate into everything else we do. So Satsujo um, followed her master's advice and um, got married. Um, probably she didn't have an awful lot of choice in this. There wouldn't have been other avenues that, uh, that she could have um, uh, followed 
where she could have supported herself. And perhaps there wasn't, I don't know this, but there may not have been um, facilities for nuns in Hara. It was a tiny little town. So she married um, somebody called Watanabe Kenzaimon, um, whose family were, were proprietors of one of the, the more high-class inns in Hara. And she's, she was widowed at a fairly young age of 44. She had quite a large uh, family, uh, several children. Switching around here between sources. This, is, this may be the most um, uh, well-known story about, about her. Um, later in life, when she was um, quite elderly, her granddaughter died. And she was suffering grief over the loss and weeping, crying. And an old man who lived next door uh, came over and admonished her for weeping and wailing. He said, people in the neighboring village are talking about you. They say she practiced under Master Hakuin. She achieved Kensho and Satori. Um, and then she, the, he adds, this grief over the loss of your granddaughter is excessive. Don't you think you should reflect over your actions? And then Satsujo glared at the man. You confounded old codger, she said, reviling him. What do you know? My tears and sorrow are far better than offering her incense and flowers or lighting candles for her. You don't know anything, you old crock. And then the, then the man left without adding anything more. This is, this is an important story because we could get wrong ideas about, um, about what an um, enlightened Zen person should look like and think that they shouldn't cry or feel grief when somebody dies. Um, somebody um, ask, might ask a question with this one, oh, aren't we supposed to let go of our attachments? Um, and certainly that's, that's true, but there's more to our relationships with people than just attachments. There are these deep connections, these bonds. And there can be few things more painful than uh, losing a child. One, one master was once asked, um, about what, what, how would he would define happiness. And he said, um, father dies, child dies. 
that's that's the best we can hope for really but when it's the other way around how painful that is so she was just she was just expressing her grief um, one one comment commentator on this said she was crying as a grandmother is supposed to cry for a, for a, uh, a child who has died that's a grandmother's job to, to, to grieve that child and she says my my tears and sorrow are far better than offering her incense and flowers or lighting candles for her In what way are our tears better than incense and candles Oh, they come they come from our hearts you know when you're when when we're crying we're just crying there's a story uh, I think it's of a Chinese master um, a similar story where the, the master weeps at the funeral of one of his disciples and he, again he somebody is concerned about how this looks and and asks him about it and he says if i don't weep when my disciple dies when will i weep Some people may have come across the story about Zhuangzi, the great <coughs> Taoist sage. Um, which, in, and in this story, we get we get the other side of the coin. Um, when um, when Zhuangzi's wife died, um, another Taoist sage came over to join him, and and bring his his condolences. And he was surprised to find Zhuangzi sitting on his on the floor with a um, a bowl up between his knees, drumming and singing. And this this other sage, Huizi, says she lived with you, brought up your children, grew old with you. That you should not mourn for her is bad enough, but to let your friends find you drumming and singing that is going too far. Again, this person is worried about how this looks. And Zhuangzi responds, you misjudge me. When she died, I was in despair, as anyone, any man might well be. But soon, pondering what had, on what had happened, I told myself that in death, no strange new fate befalls us. In the beginning, we lack not life only, but form, not form only, but spirit. We are blended in one great, featureless, indistinguishable mass. Then a time came when the mass evolved spirit, spirit evolved form, form evolved life. And now life in its turn has evolved death. For not nature only, but man's being has its seasons, its sequence of spring and autumn, summer and winter. If someone is tired and has to go, has gone to lie down, we do not pursue him with shouting and bawling. She whom I have, she whom I have lost, has lain down to sleep for a while in the great inner room, to break in upon her rest with the noise of lamentation. Would but show that I knew nothing of nature's sovereign law. 
That is why I ceased to mourn. So we could see this other side as well and, and just realize that there's a time to cry and there's time to stop crying. These both. What we, what we get from these stories about Satsujo really is her um, is her humanity and her her um, being um, comfortable in her own skin to be just who she is in that moment. When she's crying, she cries. Um, it's also related that um, she was known for her, her severity and her biting comments. Um, the monks who resided in, in Hakun's temple, Shoinji, um, would go to her with their questions, sometimes assuming that since she was an old, you know, just an old woman, she would uh, treat them in a grandmotherly kind of way. But it says, invariably, they came away looking very miserable indeed. And you might say, well, is that compassionate to send the monks away looking miserable? But the point would be, um, helping the monks to stay in a place of discomfort so that they looked more deeply, so that they did the work themselves, because she couldn't do it for them. Tough love, we could call it now, but it's not a cliche. And when Satsu passed away, Hakuin's disciple, Suyo, remarked to the assembly, during the old master's lifetime, many people were able to attain a clear and unmistakable enlightenment. Of them all, Osatsu, then O is a, an honorific, Osatsu stood preeminent. Even veteran monks, men who had practiced many years, could not approach her. We'll stop here and recite four vows.